You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Angel Eduardo. Angel, or Angel, is a writer, musician, photographer, and designer based in New York City. He is a staff writer and content creator for Idealist.org, a columnist for the Center for Inquiry, uh, and a columnist for the Center of Inquiry, where he writes on science, communication, skepticism, and morality. Angel is also a um, performing uh, musician. He teaches creative writing. He's a photographer and a graphic designer. And I hope later in the later in the podcast we might talk a little bit about the um, connections between those dif- the different media in which you work. Um, Angel has written two articles for Ario: "Words Don't Hurt, Ideas Do." And I'm a nobody. The Harper's letter was for me. I'll put links to both of those and to Angel's other work in the show notes. Welcome, Angel. Oh, thank you, Iona. It's so great to speak to you. I've been wanting to speak to you for a long time, and um, yeah, thank thank goodness we are finally we're finally doing this. <laughs> um, there are, um, I think, there are a number of key themes running through your work. But perhaps we could start with um, the concept of, of star manning, which is um, one of the things for which I think you're, you're best known for inventing this concept in an essay that you wrote for Center for Inquiry. I think everyone knows what it means to straw man an argument and to steal man an argument. But um, why did you... Um, uh, what made you invent a new concept of star manning, and what does it involve? Hmm. Well, I I wouldn't say that I invented it. It's it's not it's not a very novel concept. I guess I just gave it some new packaging. Uh, I gave it a catchy kind of name just by accident, inspired by uh, the David Bowie song "Starman," um, and it just occurred to me that it's a nice alliterative kind of three little pigs sort of thing between straw man, steel man, and star man. Um, and it really was just something that clicked in my head as as what to call the approach that I try to take in conversation with people, um, especially online, because it's so much more difficult to read people and understand them and, and avoid being hostile and avoid misinterpretation. Um, and really, it's just kind of a you know, if steel manning is the golden rule, then star manning is the platinum rule. And it's just kind of taking steel manning a step further and saying, not only do I want to understand your argument, um, but I also want to understand you. I also want to understand why you hold the position that you hold. And it's very tempting for us, especially on social media, to just assume that the reason the person holds whatever position they hold is because they're evil or stupid or, you know, some other uh, descriptor like that that puts them beneath contempt, um, which is never the case, like almost never. It's, it's hardly ever the case. Most people, most of the time, are doing what they believe is the right thing to do, is the good thing to do, and will make things better. Uh, and star manning is really just an explicit acknowledgement of that and a technique for attempting to to zero in on what that thing is. So, you know, if someone is disagreeing with you about abortion, it's easy to vilify them. It's easy to say, you know, you just want to control women's bodies or on the other side, you just want to murder babies, right? But that's not really what's going on. There are values that are undergirding people's beliefs and opinions on things. And if you connect with those values, First of all, people feel understood and they feel heard and you understand them and you're actually hearing them and you're connecting on a human level with fundamental desires that we all share. 
so that's the crux of the star manning thing. It's really just an approach. And in its most basic sense, it's just refusing to assume that your interlocutor is a monster. Most people are not monsters. Most people are just regular people, even if they're wrong. And even if they hold ideas that are monstrous or, or harmful or just plain incorrect, right? Everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. Everyone thinks they're correct. And very, very few people wake up every morning thinking, how can I harm the most people today? How can I make the world a worse place to live today? Most people don't do that. Most people are doing what they think is right. And that's, that's what is behind star manning. Mm. Yeah. I've noticed, I mean, not only that, um, there's a very human tendency, um, to, um, to attack, to vilify people for holding opinions with which you disagree. Um, and that that's very unhelpful, even when the opinions themselves may be, may be very, um, maybe eth- ethically very dodgy or bad opinions. Um, nevertheless, I think that people don't set out deliberately to just be evil. Right. Um, but they, um, I don't remember if it's in your Twitter bio where you say, um, idea, we don't have ideas, ideas have us. Oh, I um, wish I came up with that. No, that's not me. <laughs> that kind of idea, um, I think also Tim Blaze, um, who's, uh, who's a YouTuber that I follow, I'll, I'll link to his channel below. It's called Acapella Science. And mm. he has also written, um, you know, in the Twitter bio, it says, opinions my opinions mine and he says but are they though um i i think that it's i find it unhelpful and i and i have noticed not only people doing this but getting quite seeming to see it as a sort of moral imperative to do so that it's important to call the bad people out and to um not have any any kind of charitable not give any kind of charitable interpretation. And, you know, a couple of examples that that have involved me very recently, um, I just put out, uh, just published an article by David Fuller in Aria, which is um, critical of Brett Weinstein and Heather Hyings, um, the episodes on their Dark Horse podcast in which they champion the use of ivermectin mm-hmm. as a prophylactic against COVID and warn of the dangers of the COVID vaccines. Um, I mean, I didn't write that article, but I fully endorse it. And, um, and also an interview with me is about to come out where I talk about why I, uh, really support David Fuller's, um, views on this. And, um, I noticed that not only, of course, are some people saying that this is just must therefore be a hit job or an attack on Brett and Heather, Mm -hmm. but other people saying that they don't like the article because it's not enough of an attack on Brett and Heather, Um, that it's too focused. I'm too focused on, or I and in what I've said about it and David in the article itself are both too focused on critiquing the ideas and that sort of somehow we are exculpating Brett and Heather from some kind of moral opprobrium with which we should be showering them. Right. Um, and a, a very, very similarly, uh, recently we were, ta- uh, some of us were talking about Majid Nawaz and the kind of, uh, intellectual development that he's been through over the past few years. Um, in which I, I personally think Majid sounds increasingly unhinged. And I said, you know, I think that, um, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I really think there may be mental illness involved. Mm. Um, because Majid's opinions and behavior seem to have become quite erratic and extreme to me. And, uh, people felt that that was not condemnatory enough, that that was a kind of excuse. Um, and the important thing was to work out how strongly we should judge these people and then judge them in the, in the harshest terms. Right. Um, 
is that something that you have been been noticing as well? Oh yeah, um, oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I read the the piece by uh, David Fuller, and I agree with it. And I like Brett and Heather a lot. Um, and yeah, I think uh, a lot of the pushback to the star manning idea that I get uh, is either the, they fall into two main categories. The first category is just a bunch of misunderstandings or misrepresentations of what it is and what it means. It doesn't mean we're just going to, you know, sing Kumbaya with Nazis. It doesn't mean just becoming a doormat or a useful idiot. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, when um, the Gestapo is banging down your door, you're going to open it and offer them some tea. That's not what I'm talking about. It's, it's, a, it's a tool for both humility and persuasion. Um, and the, the, other, the other category of pushback is just, you know, it's the equivalent to, you know, I, I believe in free speech except for this speech. It's the same sort of kind of mechanism happening there where they say, I believe in star manning everyone except them, whoever they are, right? Because they deserve it. They are evil. They are truly beyond, you know, the capacity for compassion. They, you know, so it's a, and but in both of those cases, they're totally missing the point. I mean, I, I'm the guy who coined this term. And if you, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see me quite vigorously argue against things that I think are wrong or harmful or stupid, and I'll say so. But there's a difference between, you know, speaking of Majid Nawaz, I love the thing that he used to say, which is, you know, no idea is above scrutiny and no human being is beneath dignity. Mm-hmm. And it's really just applying that concept across the board. I don't care who you are. I care what you think and I care what the ideas are. And getting back to the fuller piece, I think, yeah, I've seen it already. You know, this isn't strident enough. This isn't vicious enough towards Brett. Um, and I guess for me, the mechanism just doesn't work. I don't have that itch anymore, at least. And what I care about are vanquishing monstrous ideas. And I see ideas as kind of, you know, viruses that people have. And that we can find cures for, you know, we can inoculate people against bad ideas through persuasion, through connection. Um, and the, I, the example that I always bring up is that of Daryl Davis, who is the African-American jazz musician who took a side gig basically as um, a deprogrammer of Klansmen. And he, I think, you know, he's collected 200 Klans robes, Klan robes. Um, since he started or more at this point, probably just from, you know, refusing to dehumanize others, even while he was being dehumanized. And I think that that, you know, that's an extreme example, but it just shows how much is possible. And, you know, he's an extraordinary human being, Daryl Davis, and what he's doing is extraordinary, but we don't need to be as extraordinary as he is because we're unlikely to meet the type of people that he's dealing with. Most of the people we're dealing with are just regular people and they have bad ideas and you might have bad ideas and you wouldn't know it until someone came and corrected you. Someone came and helped you out. I think we need to resist this urge to, you know, dehumanize and vilify and then vanquish because by the end of the day, it's just going to be all bloodshed. And, you know, what's the point? You know, I always say we have to be better than our opponents. Otherwise, what world are we saving and who for? If we become the monsters we're fighting, then it's all lost already. So just going back to the star manning concept, mm-hmm. I think that there are a couple of ways in which um, I hear people push back against this whole kind of thing, which is sometimes uh, people refer to this as civility porn. Yeah. Um, and I guess one of the things is the fear of creating false equivalences, i.e., uh, if you're equally civil to everyone, um, it implies, or this is the argument, it implies that everyone's views are equally valid and should be regarded with the same degree of respect. And mm-hmm. therefore, um, for example, um, 
would I interview a, a homeopath on this podcast? Absolutely not. <laughs> I wouldn't. Um, would I be civil to a homeopath? Not really in the same way. Um, I mean, in real life, I, I would because I am a conflict. I'm a kind of, you know, rather pusillanimous conflict avoider in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't want to give the impression that I took those ideas seriously because right. I think those ideas are just bullshit. And the correct response is to laugh at them. And um, I know that many people feel that about certain people and their political ideas. Mm -hmm. And also they worry that if we're discussing um, the the more abstract ideas with kind of calm and civility, then that somehow also legitimizes by adjacency. I'm not sure how to how to put how better to put this the uh-huh. more unsavory ideas. So for example, um when people are um defending the work of the I believe he's a um I believe he's a, a psychologist, um Steve Saylor, who is a kind of advocate for um who is somebody who often discusses race differences, racial differences in IQ, mm-hmm. in median IQ. Um, and, but he also says some pretty um, on their face racist sounding things. Like, you know, he said he thinks that blacks have not, have contribute nothing to American society. I think he phrased it as a question. He said, tell me <laughs> what have blacks ever contributed to American society? I'm curious because wow. I can't think of anything. You know, he says a lot of things like that. And he talks also about the mm. dangers of the media being dominated by Jews who will push a Jewish agenda. Right. A lot of stuff that sounds, uh, I apologize if I'm slightly misquoting him because I am speaking from memory. So please don't quote me on this in a court of law, people. <laughs> um, but um, that's the kind of case where people think that engaging respectfully in dialogue with him is sort of endorsing or at the very least ignoring those kinds of statements, which seem much more um, sinister, I would even say. Sure. Uh, How do you feel about that particular pushback? Um, I think that there is, there's an assumption there that I don't share, which is, um, which is a common one. It's it's kind of our automatic way of interacting, but it's it's that people and their ideas are the same. People are their ideas. And so if you attack someone's ideas, you're attacking a person. So this this happens often if you're attacking somebody's religious beliefs, they they take it as a personal attack on them as a human being because it's such a part of their identity. And kind of, you know, a version of that is if you are civil to a person who holds terrible ideas, then you are being civil to the ideas. And I think that's ridiculous. I mean, I I am often incredibly civil with people who hold ideas that I think are absolutely terrible. And I say so. I And I can make that distinction very easily. I say, look, to you, all the respect in the world as a human being, you deserve dignity and, and compassion, just like every other human being. But this thing that you're saying is crazy or harmful or totally wrong. It's absolute bullshit. And this is why I think it's bullshit. It's very easy for me to make that distinction. And I don't, I think that, I think that maybe people don't want to make that distinction or they don't feel that it can be made. Um, I'm not familiar with Sailor, but I can absolutely sit down and have a conversation with him about something completely unrelated to that and be fine. Um, and if that topic comes up, I will disagree vehemently and I will tell him, hey, listen, do you have 10 hours? Because the contributions of African-Americans to American society is gargantuan. So it's going to take a long time to answer your question. Um, and I don't know, I don't, I'm not out to vilify people. I'm not out to destroy anybody. I'm out to persuade people. That's what I care about. I care about ideas and I care about what people do when when in the grip of ideas. Um, 
And I think that's the other problem. The other problem is I'm not afraid to entertain an idea in my head that others would consider heinous because I'm confident in my ability to discern whether something makes sense, whether something is immoral, and whether I'm wrong about something. So I'm not afraid to be wrong. I actually look forward to it. Um, I always say being wrong is one of the best things that could possibly happen to you because you have just been spared a lifetime of being a fool about whatever whatever the topic is. Um, so I, I seek that out. And a lot of people don't. And I think all those things are intertwined. The reason that people don't is because their ideas are so ingrained in their identity that to remove the idea is to remove a piece of themselves. Like I don't feel that way. I have I have made a conscious effort to avoid feeling as though my opinions right now in August of 2021 do not create the person that I am. If I change my mind, I'm still going to be angel. And I think more people need to become more comfortable with that because that's just the way it is. Mm. And we've all had the experience of changing our minds many times. There's this there's a kind of, you know, intellectual ship of Theseus going on. Yes. All our ideas have been have been exchanged um for and updated or almost all of them. But exactly. it's still the same it's still the same person behind that. Right. Or relatively the same person. I mean, hopefully mm. changing your mind changes you morally, ethically, intellectually, right? In good ways. Um and or having, bad. Yeah, and having the wrong ideas can change you in bad ways. But change is the only constant. Yeah, I just think we should be more humble with ourselves and we should recognize, you know, we've all been wrong. And I'm sure that we can all remember times where we were completely convinced that we were correct and then finally realized one way or the other that we were wrong. And how much better it is to be on the other side of that. And the thing is, you never know until it happens. And what's the best way for that to happen? If you are being pilloried and publicly shamed and people are you know, just saying the nastiest and most terrible things they can imagine to you because you hold some idea that turns out to be wrong. How likely are you to appreciate that? How likely are you to be convinced, right? You know, we have this instinct of digging our heels in when we feel attacked. Now, compassionate correction is so much better. If, if someone, you know, if someone feels heard and understood, even if they're being disagreed with, if you can do that, you're far more likely to persuade them. And, you know, as long, at least for me, that's my goal. I think that's another thing to answer your question, which is what is your goal? What, what is it that you're actually after? A lot of people are not really out to persuade. They've made their mind up. These people are the monsters I need to vanquish and I'm just going to vanquish them. And it makes me feel good. Um, I'm not out for that. To me, that's kind of fast food. You know, maybe it tastes good in the moment, but you kind of feel crummy afterwards. And then you're hungry again in 45 minutes. I prefer, you know, eating healthy. I prefer doing it the other way. It takes longer. It's harder, but it's more worthwhile. And I feel better at the end of the day. It's also, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's a very, it's very much a social thing. It's impossible to get out of, especially when you're on social media, get out of the kind of, um, signaling treadmill mm -hmm. um i mean we are a social species of apes so we're very we're always conscious when we're voicing our opinions of how they will be received by others um and who we wish to align ourselves with is very often uppermost in our mind and it's i can't remember who actually said this i think it's a classical cl uh, classic classical quote um that uh what what uh what worries or i can't remember what the exact phrasing was but um mm -hmm. what exercises the kind of emotions of men is not things themselves but opinions about things mm -hmm. and um on social media and and even on media in general what you're often looking at is that at one remove it's um that kind of attitude squared because you're you are responding to and commenting on people's opinions about other people's opinions about things <laughs> yeah it becomes a christopher nolan movie very quickly 
<laughs> yes. Um, I mean, even in, even in legacy media, you will hear, you know, this is the situation in Afghanistan. Okay, now here's what Boris Johnson thinks about the situation. Yeah. And uh, here's what Biden thinks about the situation. Here's what this commentator thinks. And here's what that commentator thinks. Mm-hmm. Um, we are very interested in what other people think. Right. Um, and we are more worried about what they think than about the thing itself. And that's often, that often leads to some very skewed priorities. But it seems to be just deeply humanly ingrained. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I certainly, I personally certainly cannot avoid it. No, I don't think we can. But we can do it in more or less productive ways. Um, so we can do the signaling thing and we can, you know, act for the approval of our group or tribe or whatever you want to call it, or our side, our political party, you know, our ideological tribe. Um, but depending on what that group is or what that, what those principles are that you're trying to signal that you have, it could be a good thing. I mean, the way that I try to do it is, you know, I'm I'm far from someone who has a brand of any kind. I, I'm not an influencer or anything like that. I'm just a a person on Twitter. <laughs> but I I am consciously trying to make it that my quote unquote brand is honesty and humility and compassion. So if I ever slip, when I slip, because I will and I do and I fail often, um. There are people out there who are going to call me out because they're going to say, hey, you're going off brand. What are you doing? This isn't Angel's brand. My brand is I will argue and I will resist and I will reject bad ideas and, and bad faith and hostility, but I will not reciprocate it. And if I ever, if I ever succumb to that and, you know, make a low blow, make a snide remark, People will be like, "Whoa, angels!" You know, they'll they'll notice it because I've taken such a conscious effort to create this idea of this is what I'm aiming for, and I'm I'm kind of using the social pressure to force me to be better, whereas most people are using the social pressure and they're it's inevitably making them worse. Um, I think I, I just took this active approach to try to make it where all right, I'm going to take these incentivizing dynamics and make them work for me. I'm going to try to be a better person on Twitter. You know, there there are many ways in which I'm a better person on Twitter than I am in real life, right? In real life, I'm much messier. It's much more difficult. And it seems to be the opposite for most people. Most people are way more vicious and vitriolic on Twitter than they ever would be in real life because they don't have that anonymity and that distance, that detachment from their target. Mm. But I'm trying to do the opposite. Yeah, it's odd that people's people feel. Um, I mean, we surely evolve for face to face contact and conversation, mm-hmm. and so people feel just very detached from other human beings. Uh, often, when they're on Twitter, um, and um, and therefore sort of able to speak in a way that they wouldn't speak in real life. And I I think that a lot of people. Um, you talked about anonymity, and I know you don't mean that in a literal sense. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a mistake that many people make. They say, oh, well, people are angrier on social media and there's more trolling and all that because they're anonymous and therefore unaccountable. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, I, I, um, I don't really see any strong correlation between the levels of kind of um, – vitriol on Twitter in, in a person's Twitter account, whether or not that person is anonymous right. or is using Twitter under their own name. You know, I see people are using Twitter under their own full names with their profile pictures. And um, a blue check mark. From, yeah, blue check mark especially. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the blue check mark is more understandable because I think Twitter is, uh, is something like less likely to put a strike against you if you're a blue check mark, so you have a little more freedom of speech um but also you know they're representatives of very dignified organizations or whatever and (laughs) um there it's just a constant 
fuck you, fucking fuck, I hate you all kind of thing. Um, And I think that I'm sure that they wouldn't speak that way in real life, um, even when very angry. So it gives you this odd feeling of protection. It's as if what you're saying isn't kind of publicly visible, even though at the same time, it definitely is. Mm -hmm. But there's an illusion of control that you can kind of show that side of yourself to the people you want to see it. Right. And yet somehow it's protected and walled off from your personal life and the people you don't want to see it. And, you know, I was, um, so I recently met my boyfriend's uh, brother mm-hmm. and I was extremely alarmed when he said, oh, you know, when, um, when he um, heard about me from his brother in order to find out who I was, he went and looked me up on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and I, my heart just sank at that, but at least it sank less than it would have done had this happened two years ago. Ah. Because I've really reformed my Twitter behavior, and it's partly because I want to be very, very frank, but I don't want to be behaving in a way that I would be ashamed of if I were doing it in real life. And right. I often used to behave that way on Twitter. And weirdly, it just felt, it seemed as though there was a kind of impunity to it. And that's really, really odd. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean that I want to be less frank. Um, and of course, there is there is a time for abusive language, even. Um, there is a time and place and a use for that kind of strong language. Um, but it's like, I feel as though on it, it, it's like, um, you know, being on the bus or on the train and picking your nose <laughs> and sort of feeling as though, um, you can, if you're, if I'm really lost in thought on the train, um, cause I often pick my nose and I'm pensive on my own, I can <laughs> start picking my nose because I kind of forget that I'm there in public and everybody can see me. Right. And it's a really disgusting thing to be doing in public. Um, and, Twitter, I think, has that same feeling. You sort of, you, it feels like its own world and you feel somehow protected and walled off, mm-hmm. uh, but you're really not. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, and it's also, you know, it always boils down to what is it that you want? What, what itch is this scratching for you? Um, and for a lot of people, it's, oh, I'm going to go, you know, I'm, I'm jumping into the Thunderdome and I'm going to, you know, delight in this melee um i'm gonna feel so much better about myself because i i discovered and destroyed a racist on twitter you know this mm-hmm. happens it's it's something that people it, it kind of translates into the real world everyone has this secret identity where they go off and fight crime you know it's <laughs> it's very you know i'm a mild-mannered reporter and then i get on twitter and that's when i you know vanquish evil Aha, uh-huh. uh-huh. yes, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, there, there's um, a little bit of that, I think. I'm doing my mm. part because I've, you know, I've, I piled on against, you know, Glenn Greenwald or whoever, right? Mm. And it's, but it, it, it's, it's largely ineffectual. It's largely just um, theater. Um, it doesn't do anything really, but it makes you feel good for 10 seconds, you know? Well, in a way, I guess that's good. I mean, I don't subscribe to a kind of, um, uh, how to put it, a venting theory of human emotions. Mm. So I agree with Darren Brown on this. We are not steam engines. We don't actually, we don't actually need to let off steam. <laughs> um, and angrily venting, um, the evidence suggests that it doesn't make people feel better afterwards. It's not that yeah. I must vent in order to get this out and there, be calmer in the rest of my life. In fact, the more you angry rant, the angrier you are in general in your normal life as well. Yeah, um, that's true. It's 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 not this kind of input-output mechanical system. That's a really misleading metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is good that we uh, we fight each other on Twitter with um, your mom jokes and things rather than actually fighting jewels and things. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's definitely better to argue than to fight. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, imagine if Nassim, someone like Nassim Nicholas Taleb oh, um, yeah. had been around in the 18th century. Um, he, he, he would have fought have been so many duels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Probably not, unless he was an excellent shot. <laughs> right. He would have to be the most expert marksman on earth. He is very uh, abrasive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there is a sense in which that is... Um, there is a kind of kind of level of consequence freeness. I mean, I don't want to um I don't want to underestimate the if the impact of having really horrible comments leveled at you. Um but also oh, no. you do yeah. have on Twitter the uh, the option of blocking and muting and things and yes. Um it's I think it's easy to overestimate how much there's a correlation there with real life. Mm-hmm. Um you know, yeah. real life people who want to hurt you don't warn you first by calling you a dickhead. Um, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Like, I know you recently got a bunch of hate from Hindu nationalists. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's I, just, that's unpleasant. Nobody likes that. Um, yes. You know, we are social species. We don't, we don't like being disliked. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you didn't, I'm sure you didn't necessarily feel threatened or in danger in reality because of those hateful comments no no um but they they still suck and the thing is that they do sometimes spill over um Mm, people's lives do get destroyed so i don't want to minimize that um but there is this kind of disconnect that people seem to have between who they are on twitter and who they are in real life and they kind of allow themselves it's kind of like westworld you know i'm gonna go and I can torture robots because they're robots. You know, it's sort of that thing. I don't know if you watched Westworld, but uh, no, I've, I I haven't watched it. Okay, well, it's it's a it's you know sometime in the future, and it's a theme park sort of thing where you get to live action role play as uh, you know a, a cowboy or whatever. You know, you're in the old west, and there are highly intelligent and indistinguishable from real human beings robots that are they populate the park and they run scripts and you can interact with them and you know shooting them seems like shooting a real person so it's all these things and the point of the show is to kind of deal with these ideas of you know what makes a person human and all these sorts of things but you know people go in there and part of part of the 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 theme of the show is that these people go into this place and suddenly all their worst inclinations come out you know they murder they rape they torture these these robots um they're called hosts on the show uh who exhibit every every um indication every signal of being a human being that is being raped and murdered and tortured so there's experientially speaking there's no difference between murdering them torturing them and murdering a real human being and torturing them you know in your in your in your, you know, your experience, it's, it's no different. But in your head, you know, oh, this is just a robot, so I don't care. And I think there's a lot of that with social media. I'm going on to social media and I'm fighting with avatars and mm. I don't care. Um, and so I think, you know, I often say that social media is kind of the, the boss level of discourse, to use a video game metaphor. Um, and I, I think that we need to have our skills very finely tuned in order to be effective and to not make a mess there. Um, and I actually saw the other day on Twitter, um, there, there had been a thing of, you know, if you try to retweet an article without having clicked on the link, it asks you, do you want to read this first? There's a new one um, that I noticed where I, I tweeted something and I used the phrase, people are going to think you're an asshole, but mm. you're an asshole was flagged. Yes. By Twitter. And so when I clicked send, I got a little pop up that said, you know, are you sure you want to say this? Yeah. You know, it seems yes. like you're seems like it's something to the effect of it seems like you're being hostile. Are you sure you want to use this kind mm-hmm. of you want to take mm-hmm. this approach? And I think that's that's pretty cool. Uh, it's just giving you a moment to pause and say, look, is this really the best way to say what you're saying? Um, you know, it's kind of I find it kind of disappointing that Twitter has to step in and try to mediate. Um, because we can't seem to do it ourselves, but that seems like a slightly a beneficial, you know, little feature to have. 
Ah, yeah, I guess I disagree because I think it seems condescending. And right, um, right. so I think that people's response will be to say, fuck you. Yes, that is what I want to say. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, yeah, I don't have high hopes for it working very well, but it seems to me to be at least a good instinct. Like, hey, maybe, you know, I say it all the time. I, I tweet it all the time saying, try to remember that there's a human being on the other side of this. Whatever it is you're going to say, there's a human being who's going to receive it and read it and internalize it. So maybe think twice about how you're going to do this, how you're going to say this, because it's important. Well, I think also that um, often just waiting is all that's required. Yes. Um, I mean, uh, very frequently, you know, if you're going to send an angry email, you should first wait mm -hmm. and then you can send it later. Um, you should sleep on things before you say them. Um, you should leave just more pauses between the thought or the feeling and the utterance. Yes. Um, that's, that usually in itself helps an awful lot, um, even without any particular intention to make things milder. Just, mm -hmm. just wait. Yeah. I that's all. Say, just I, let I, some time, just let some measure of time elapse. Right. Um, a few I seconds, think. a few hours, a few days, or or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, I prefer cold takes. I don't like hot takes. Uh -huh. <laughs> Put them in the freezer, and and if, if if when you take them out, thaw it out, and if it still looks edible, then go for it. Mm -hmm. Give it that time. Put it in the freezer. I don't want it hot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I so you are a strong proponent of free speech, and I think that that. Um, it's, I think it's, it's, um, I, I guess that I think that people who are strong proponents of free speech have a particularly, have a particular, um, duty, um, to think carefully about what they say and to encourage good speech. Um, mm. always to encourage though, not never to actually, um, uh, never to, um, mandate or coerce. Mm. Um, and you wrote a lovely article for Ario, which um, maybe you'd like to talk about a little bit, which is which uh, under the title "Words Don't Hurt, Ideas Do." Um, mm -hmm. I'm reading a small um, a small part of this. Um, well, words you write only have the power we give them. Without us, they're empty vessels. Mm -hmm. Words, yes, words have certain qualities. With the dirty ones, it's particularly easy to see. Fuck is dynamic and punchy. Cunt is sharp and percussive. Stick, uh, stick, <laughs> sorry, shit is sticky and stretchy. Words can have a rhythm, an intensity, a sense of movement to them. They can also feel dull, weightless, and evanescent. This is what makes language beautiful, and it what, it's what gives poetry its power. The mistake we make is in thinking that words are those qualities rather than simply embodying them. The flares and flourishes that color our vocabulary are contexts, ideas and impressions that we infuse into our words and which are informed by the world in which we use them. If the context were different, the words would be too. Um, I'm skipping a little bit. Um, the pen is mightier than the sword because ideas are why swords are swung, because ideas are more powerful than scribbles on a page or the movements of a tongue. Words can't create ideas and their absence can't destroy them. Only we can do that. Policing language never works because if ideas persist, other words will be used to communicate them. Um, so that reminds me a lot of the of the sort of notion of the euphemism treadmill, um, mm. which I think is, um, I think John H. McWhorter, I don't know if he pioneered the usage, uh, I don't know if he pioneered that phrase, um, mm. but he certainly, or no, sorry, Steve, Stephen Pinker, um, I don't know if he pioneered that phrase, but he certainly uses it. Yeah. Um, do you want to say more about that kind of, how to acknowledge, because you are a poet and a writer, that words are powerful and and still 
defend the idea of a radical and fundamental freedom of speech. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I could I can take an easy out here and just say that you reading that paragraph with the dirty words makes my point better than I ever could because it was beautiful. It just sounds beautiful and I could listen to you read that over and over again even if I didn't write it. Uh, it just sounds lovely. It's <laughs> <That's> funny. <laughs> Iona Iona Italia saying the word cunt is just lovely. It's very poetic and beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's music. Um but you know, I think I think that it's a similar conflation as what we were talking about before that people think that um the ideas that people hold are the people, you know that the ideas are inextricable from the people who hold them. Um I think that people behave at least as though the meaning of words or the ideas that we use words to describe are inextricable from the words themselves. And I think that this causes us to make many, many errors in judgment and in interaction with each other. I think words are tools, and I will grant that some tools are more dangerous than others, right? Because they were built for a certain purpose, right? So a chainsaw is something you need to be far more careful with than a screwdriver, right? They're both tools, and it would be wrong to dismiss them as tools and say that they're identical and equivalent. They aren't but they're still tools. And a screwdriver is not going to do a single thing. And a chainsaw is not going to do a single thing unless someone picks it up and uses it for something. And that is the same thing with words. You know, words have, um, you know, we, we have kind of a, an agreed upon sort of definition most of the time. We, sometimes words have multiple definitions. Sometimes words are used differently in different contexts. And we have to understand those things. There are certain words that people harp on and they act as though there is only one context and one meaning that it could ever possibly have. And we know that that's just not true. It's not the way that words work. It's not the way that communication works. And so that's why we need to be more humble and kind of compassionate and uh, forgiving about the misuses of words. So, you know, you're, you're across the pond, you're, you're in London. And the word cunt is very different over there than it is over here in the States, right? Mm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's almost a term of endearment in certain seg segments of, you know, Great Britain. Um, but over here, it's pretty much an insult. It's pretty much a slur against usually women, but also, you know, it's a kind of homophobic slur for men. But that's the point. The point is we understand these contexts. And there are times where we, we kind of willfully shut that understanding off for ideological reasons or for emotional reasons. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that we need to very consciously avoid this conflation of words having meanings and words being meanings. And it's, it's, it seems like a, a, a trivial distinction, but it's not. Um, I bring up in the, in the piece, the case of Greg Patton, who was giving a business lecture and used the Chinese word nega, which sounds very, very similar to the boop word we can't say. Uh, mm -hmm. And everyone knew what he was saying because he, you know, the, the context was very obvious to anyone who wasn't asleep during the class. What he was saying was very clearly not the English word that everyone knows, but it sounded close enough and the, and, you know, the students who heard it and got upset, you know, probably performatively, but let's just say they were, they were honestly, you know, troubled by it. it. What they're, what they're doing when they do that, whether they realize it or not, is acting as though a combination of syllables, regardless of meaning and regardless of context, has some kind of magic power to harm people. And that's not what's actually going on. What's going on is you have an idea in your head of what those two, what those sounds are conjuring and you're being affected by that idea, but it's not necessarily the idea that the other person had in mind. And you have to understand that. Um, I'm getting a little bit lost here, but the, the basic point is just that understanding that there's a difference between a chainsaw and a screwdriver, that some words ha are loaded, that some words are going to trigger responses in people because of the ideas that are connected to them doesn't mean that we should ban words. 
And it definitely doesn't mean that banning words is going to ban the idea or get rid of the idea. The idea will persist. And the euphemism treadmill, like you brought up, you know, we, we know about words that kind of went stale because they were overused and then they were replaced by another one. And then that one suffered the same fate. You know, um, mentally retarded used to be the clinical term for people with that particular disability. And eventually that word went into the lexicon and it became a pejorative that people would use in their daily lives. And it started to, to have a stigma attached to it. And so we, we switched to another term that we have to use. And it's just going to keep going like that because the problem that people are trying to solve by changing the words out is remaining constant while we sit there just changing the words. Um, I think it's just this misfire and this misunderstanding, this conflation of ideas and the words that we use to describe the ideas or to communicate them. We seem to think that if we get rid of the words, that if we prevent people from speaking those sounds, that somehow those ideas will be destroyed. They won't. Not at all. They never have and they never will. I think that, so Steele Manning, some pushback to that. Um, <laughs> I think that it could be argued that, uh, for example, in the UK in the 70s and 80s, um, and I remember, I remember this um, when... I, I remember this when I was growing up. There were um, a lot of a, a lot of um, jokes were made that today would be considered racist. A lot of things were said that that um, I think absolutely anybody would consider racist, and those were voiced publicly without really any without any kind of consequences. That was just the normal way in which people talked about things, mm. and. Um, in the sort of 90s, I guess, in the late 80s, early 90s, that kind of thing beca became taboo, became increasingly taboo. And I do think that the taboo, making those things taboo, the kind of self-censorship that went on, um, actually probably did change people's minds mm -hmm. that, that, that we are all floating in the kind of discourse and the kinds of things we're used to hearing said do give us, um, again, this is the social aid thing. They do give us pointers as to the kind of least resistance directions in which to take our thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why, of course, you know, in certain periods, people are more likely to be racist or sexist or whatever than in other periods and in certain societies than in other societies. So we are influenceable. Um, Although I think that coercion doesn't work. Um, right. Stopping people from saying something won't stop them from thinking it. And making people say something won't make them think it. Right. Um, but there is a set, there is a kind of, um, in a more amorphous sense in which we are influenced by the kinds of things that are said. And uh, it's actually good that certain things are no longer, are no longer frequently said. I think they should absolutely be permitted to be said. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, um, the social program is such that people don't want to say them. And in fact, that's good. Well, I, I would agree with that. I think that um, that's how people change and that's how things change and ideas change. Uh, but just as you said, I think the, the problem comes, first of all, when we decide to coerce when we try to, you know, literally ban or, or uh, make some kind of legal case for eliminating words from, from our lexicon. That doesn't work. Um, in fact, that usually pisses people off and makes them want to do it and say it more. Uh, so, you know, I, I, think, I think there's that. And then there's also the, the concept creep around the taboo of certain words is if we forget that what we're really having a taboo about is the idea that is being communicated. If we forget that, then we can easily slip into cases like the one that I just outlined, where literally the, the combination of sounds is setting people off and it's turning into this entire thing. Or, you know, people are trying to um, ban the teaching of Mark Twain because of the language, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, there's, we have to be careful about that concept creep as well of 
you know, infusing words with this kind of magic power that regardless of context and regardless of intention, the words themselves are, are corrosive. And, you know, that, that's just silly. And that, you know, going down that road is not good for anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so a, a passage that I'd like to read from an article you wrote, which is about teaching creative writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of your denunciations, I guess, of identity politics, as I would put it. Um, <laughs> and I'm quite interested in your views on how this, how you feel this is affecting um, artists, because you're also a graphic artist, musician, um, a writer, how you feel this is um, affecting artistic expression and uh, whether there's a, a connection between uh, your political views here and the kind of art you make. Um, let me read the passage. To be sure, questions about inclusion and representation are worth asking. We still suffer a great many ills born of the categories into which people divide and place one another, wherever those ills manifest whether they're on syllabi or hiring practices or standards of policing, they demand our attention and intervention. But something else had begun to happen, an overcorrection. Suddenly, certain ideas, indeed certain facts, were considered wrong or right based on the identity of the person who voiced them or the implications those ideas might have on a certain group. This went against all of my intellectual and moral instincts and flew in the face of the ethics I had developed as a boy, not by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. Making less logical sense, being even more sensitive to perceived slights, and further dividing one another into ethical and intellectual silos, never felt to me like the way to solve the real problems of the world, but that was exactly what was happening. So how have, has this this kind of overcorrection, how has this affected, do you think, the world of, of art? Oh, well. Or if it has. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm sure it, it definitely has. I'm sure that I'm not alone in um, my trepidation. For example, in publishing that piece, I wrote that piece uh, many years ago. And I sat on it for, I think, two years just because I was afraid to submit it anywhere. Um, if it were to get published, I was afraid of what might happen to me. I'm afraid, I was afraid of, you know, whatever the blowback would be. I had suffered a kind of mini, mini public shaming back in 2012, and that had really chilled me. Uh, tell, tell us about that. What <laughs> happened back in, what happened? Uh, well, you know, make Twitter used to be a kind of, a a kind of, uh, a kind of wild west, at least when I, when I jumped in around 2012, 2011 and, uh, comedians and people like that had their, you know, they, they kind of held court there and it was much more freewheeling and people just kind of vomited out things to be shocking or to be silly or to be funny or at least to attempt those things. And I was playing around with that. And, you know, I, uh, I joined, there was, um, there was a hashtag game and the hashtag was replace band names with rape. And the idea was, you know, uh, rape Zeppelin or, you know, the raping stones. So you just take the word rape and, in, and put it into the name of a band and see what you can come up with. Um, and so I was doing that. I was sitting in a waiting room and I was bored and I was playing around with that. And I, at the time it was, it was, um, all my tweets were forwarding to Facebook and I didn't really pay attention to that. And so my entire Facebook feed was just all these tweets, um, with the hashtag and certain people that I knew started to get very upset. It turned into a lot of infighting between people about, you know, whether you should be able to make these jokes and it turned into this whole thing. And then, you know, a few people that I knew from since eighth grade or seventh grade um, took it upon themselves to prop me up and just pile on. And it turned into this whole thing. And this is before, you know, public shaming was something that I was aware of. And this was before cancellation was something that was spoken about, as far as I knew. Uh, And I was just aghast at 
the idea that, you know, people didn't, people who knew me very well personally somehow would forget everything about me and focus only on this one thing that they found distasteful or wrong or harmful and characterize me fully based only on that. Um, and yeah, I felt terrible about it. Uh, you know, I, I said, you know, I'm just joking around. These are just jokes, but it didn't matter to them. And, you know, I was fairly, fairly viciously tarred and feathered by these people that I knew. So it was a much more personal thing. Um, and so that, that kind of turned me off to everything. And I, I just stopped using social media very much. I was very, very careful about what I said. And as a result, I, you know, I, I, I became very hesitant to use social media. I became very hesitant to joke around. I became um, hesitant to speak on anything, to make any kind of, you know, even remotely controversial or contrary opinions. I just decided I'm off. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm not going to deal with this. I'll focus on music and I'll promote that, but I'm not going to get into it with people. I'm not going to, you know, put myself out there anymore because I was worried about that. It was a very unpleasant experience. I didn't want to repeat it. And so when, you know, I felt that I had something to say, that I had something to contribute in terms of the discourse, in terms of, you know, maybe I have an essay that I'd like to write, I stopped myself. And I, you know, I wrote this essay and I sat on it for two years because I just was terrified of what might happen if people willfully misinterpret it, you know, um, you know, who knows? So I didn't want it to get worse. And I, so I avoided it. Um, and I think that, I think that there are probably a lot of people like that. And there are a lot of artists who are concerned that, you know, if they don't already have a following, if they don't already have some sort of buffer between them and this sort of reaction that they won't be able to get anywhere. Um, but at the same time, there are the people who are, you know, sort of capitalizing on this climate and being the one who is going to say the thing that they're not allowed to say, being the one that is going to, you know, give the finger to the censors and, and the censorious people. Um, and that ends up being their brand. You know, I'm the guy who's going to, who's going to flout them. I'm the guy who's going to go against that, that grain. And that's obviously very, uh, very um, lucrative endeavor for many people as well. So it's kind of, it's hard to say exactly. I'm sure that there is a chilling effect that we don't know about, but I can't discount the fact that there's also an opportunity there for anyone brave enough to speak up, for anyone who says, I don't care, I'm going to do what I like. There's an audience for that. So it has affected art for sure. I don't know at the end of the day if it'll be a net positive or a net negative. Um, but I'm, I'm, I am glad that I ended up publishing that piece. I'm glad that I put it out there. And I'm glad that I wrote that piece for Ario about the Harper's Letter. I'm glad that it happened because it turns out there are so many people out there who want to say something, but for, for whatever reason, just pure fear or you know actual legitimate concerns about their financial situation, their work situation, their family situation, um, they, they feel that they can't. Um, those of us who can should. Uh, so I finally did. I got up the nerve and I did that. And at least for me, I've been very fortunate that it's been almost completely positive in terms of the response, uh, which I was very afraid of. But yeah, it turned out okay. That's great. <laughs> um, Angel, is there is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you feel is central to your your work and your thinking. Uh, you mean besides the Oxford comma? <laughs> oh gosh, let's not get into that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I think I think the one thing that I'd want to say is that the thing that fuels all of my work, whether it's my music or art or writing or even just my interaction with people, especially on social media, is compassion. I care very, very much about people. I care very, very much about ideas. And I just, I feel that it is patently obvious that there are better and worse ways to engage with people in order to persuade. And compassion is the primary tool. It's, it's, it's the engine 
that is powering Star Manning. And it is the engine that powers all my creative work. I want to connect with people. I want to understand people. And I want to help people however I can. And I want to be helped by others. And I think that extending compassion towards people, especially people who you find totally lost and disagreeable and even hostile to you or your personhood or whatever, um, that's the way in um, to bring it back to Daryl Davis, I mean, someone asked him in an interview, what does it feel like? You know, you're standing here with this Nazi, this literal skinhead, and he's calling you these slurs and he's saying all these terrible things to you. Um, how must that feel? And his response was, I don't feel anything. I'm fine. That has everything he's saying has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. And so that comes from this place of, of wanting to or refusing to dehumanize even when being dehumanized. And I think we need more of that. I think that that's really my goal is just to remind everyone and remind myself that we're dealing with human beings who have feelings and values and beliefs and the same fundamental desires that we all have at the very, very bottom because we're all people. We're all interconnected. We need each other. Um, we can't forget that. So that's, that's really where I'm coming from with everything. And yeah, it could be wrong. Uh, I hope that if I am, that someone will point it out and I hope I'm smart enough to recognize it when they do. And I'm just trying my best to do good and be good. That's the gist of it. Thank you very much, Angel. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much, Iona. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.